Congress, the President, the Supreme Court. We think of government and politics through the lens of what is happening in Washington. But we are far more affected by our local officials, community volunteers, and everyday citizens than anything decided in D.C. This podcast brings these stories to you through conversations with the people shaping our lives in our communities. Born and raised in South Jersey, I know firsthand the strength of our neighborhoods. At 16, I volunteered for my congressman when I learned that constituent service is a primary responsibility of any elected official. Constituent service is another name for good government. These are the stories of government doing good in our towns, our boroughs, our municipalities, our counties, our regions, our state. I'm Jack Clett, and this is For the Public. In our first episode, we hear from John Weingart, Associate Director of the Eagleton Institute at Rutgers University and dedicated servant of the people of New Jersey for over 30 years. Oh, and he gave me my first job. We talk about John's service to the state, his inspiration to serve, and the things that make New Jersey government just a tad bit quirky. My guest today is John Weingart, a public servant of over 30 years. John's work in government has included chairing the New Jersey Highlands Council, directing the New Jersey Low-Level Radioactive Waste Disposal Facility Siting Board, and serving as Assistant Commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. Since 2000, John has been Associate Director of the Eagleton Institute at Rutgers University. On a personal note, he gave me my first job post-college, hiring me to serve as a district aide to former representative of New Jersey's 12th Congressional District, Rush Holt. John, that intro barely scratches the surface. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Um, before we dive in here and, and tackle all of these uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful aspects of your background and, and work as a public servant in New Jersey, how are you and your family faring through this socially distanced period? Well, it's nice of you to ask. We're doing very well. Um, we live in a beautiful place, and both my wife and I are working from home and um, going no place. So we, we since March, we can, you know, we've been to the drugstore, we've gotten some food, um, and uh, our daughter lives in Philadelphia and is finishing a graduate program in physical therapy. So all of us, particularly compared to anyone else, are, are doing great. So thank you. That's great to hear. Um, I think if there is a silver lining in all of this, uh, it has brought some, some neighbors closer together, some communities closer together. We're here in beautiful Collingswood, New Jersey, and uh, we are now known as the uh, location on our block where the socially distanced happy hours uh, occur oh, nice. on the regular. <laughs> so, um, so listen, we're in a period, I think, here uh, in the country where so much attention as it relates to government is given to Washington. And most of that really is negative. It highlights, I think, the conflict uh, in our system, uh, hypocrisy of many of our elected leaders, which I think is most apparent right now in the push to nominate a Supreme Court justice prior to the next president taking office. This podcast is designed to be a complete departure uh, of all of that. Uh, primarily, it's about the good work of government. Uh, I'm excited, I think, uh, most specifically to have you as our inaugural guest because your career has been one focused on the good of government, the, the promise 
of government. I think um, at, the, the, at the risk of embarrassing you, I will say that um, we first met 23 years ago um, when I was a wee lad, uh, and you were a wee lad also. <laughs> and I would say that um, good government and John Weingart are probably uh, synonymous. So thanks again uh, for being here. In, in, the, uh, in kind of the mix here as we talk about negativity and, and those things that are often um, described as uh, frustrating uh, as it relates to government work, what inspired you to serve? And frankly, what's kept you serving all these years? Um, well, I mean, partly it was my parents. Um, my, <clears throat> my, my mother worked on Wall Street. Um, uh, my father worked as a social worker. Um, but they were very inspired by Franklin Roosevelt and by the New Deal. And so I grew up long after that it happened, but with that as, um, um, you know, the heroes in, in our household, there's on the, on the, uh, the dime printed on the dime is a port is a picture of Franklin Roosevelt. And there are also dimes in circulation with a picture of lady Liberty on them, on them. And I grew up just thinking that the lady Liberty was actually Eleanor Roosevelt. It was, and, uh, so there's that. I grew up in the, I went to college in the 60s, so that was certainly an, an influence. Um, but really, a lot of my, if, if I pick one event, um, I became a fan of folk music at a young age, like when I was nine. And Pete Seeger was a hero to me musically. I just loved his music and got to go to some of his concerts. And going to his concerts at that era, early 60s, um, they'd be picketed because he was thought to have been a member of the Communist Party. And occasionally they'd be canceled because there was so much controversy about him appearing. And that was sort of when I first learned about government because there were hearings held by the House Un-American Activities Committee saying, in effect, he, should be, he shouldn't be singing because he has political views we don't agree with. There was a, a Senate, U.S. Senate a hearing where one of the senators from New York, where I grew up, uh, Kenneth Keating, who was a Republican, rose and spoke in, in uh, Pete Seeger's defense, and I always respected him for that. So there was that uh, as, as uh, other impacts. And, that, and I got to like politics, electoral politics, and, and to some extent fell into government after that. Well, I'm glad you had the, uh, the inspiration because, as I mentioned, a lot of your, your work has been focused on uh, the good the government can do. How have you remained immune to the negativity that seems to frame so much of government, even sometimes at the state and local level? Well, it's, I find in everything about life at the moment, there's the, the conversation of what you think and what your experience is independent of Trump or independent of the last four years, because that regardless of what you think of him, is so different from anything. So before that, um, working in government, I got hired into the Department of Environmental Protection in New Jersey, um, being told it was a one-year job that was funding for one year. And in fact, in one of my interviews, I was told I should think about it like a graduate uh, 
fellowship that in a year I needed another job. Um, I ended up staying there, not exactly in that job, but staying there for 19 years. Um, and part of what I came to realize being essentially in the same place for a long time was that things really got accomplished, but they took a whole lot longer than you might expect. So that um, if you were only there for a year or a couple of months, you could be overwhelmed with the bureaucracy in a negative sense. And I, I use the word bureaucrat as a term of endearment, or at least a neutral term, but a large organization that's not gonna move as, be as agile, nimble as you would like it to be. And to do a, what seems like a minor thing can be really take a long time. But if you st stay in some place for a significant period of time or stay focused on some issue, again, pre-Trump, you could see progress. Um, and, uh, and so that was gratifying in itself. Um, so that, that was part of it. I, I came to think, um, I, don't have any, I don't have any scientific training or background. I don't feel like I have any particular specific knowledge at all, really. So I think to some extent that contributed to my approach to government where I became something of a translator for people who had expertise. So my initial job was to set up a public participation program under a then new federal program, the Coastal, Coastal Zone Management Act. And there were people I worked with who were biologists or geologists or hydrologists who could tell you lots of things about why different policies should or shouldn't be in, in place. But when they wrote about them, they weren't all that clear to people who didn't uh, have a big background like me. So I became sort of an informal clearinghouse. If, if I could understand it, then maybe other people could too. Um, and just then in some ways that that's sort of been the way I've approached professional life since then. Well, you've mentioned a little bit about um, in that answer about some of the, the work that you've done. So I'd like to talk a little bit about what you've accomplished through the various appointments over the course of your career. And unless I'm mistaken, other than a run for uh, for school board, which you won and served, your government work has been through appointments. One such appointment was serving as executive director of the, wait for it because it's long, but the New Jersey low-level radioactive waste disposal facility siting board. You ultimately would write a book about that experience and you've been quoted as calling that job enjoyable. And I would imagine a lot of folks uh, maybe scratching their heads a little bit about what actually made that experience enjoyable. So what did make it enjoyable? Well, it was, under federal law and to some extent state law, New Jersey had an obligation, it seemed, in the 90s, early 90, late 80s, early 90s, to find a location to dispose of low-level radioactive waste, which is not fuel rods, but it's material that is radioactive and is generated at uh, medical laboratories, nuclear power plants, academic institutions. And it's, it's hazardous, it's dangerous, but it seems that people know can find engineering solutions to dispose of it safely if you find a good location to do it. And so New Jersey legislature had set up a commission to try to find a location and they had hired a, a, 
uh, executive, the commission I hired an executive director and he had retired after a couple of years and I got hired into that. Part of what was in, made it enjoyable was there were such low expectations that nobody other than me and the seven people I worked with, few people other than us thought we could succeed. But I really thought we could succeed because it was a uh, the commission was moving into an extremely unusual decision-making process to try to find a municipality that would volunteer to be the host for this facility rather than shoving it down a community's throat and being in court for 10 or 20 years. There was the hope that if we design based, based a process on how people think about risk and the ways in which we're all somewhat irrational and in normal times feel safer getting into a car than getting into an airplane, even though per mile traveled, a plane is far safer than a car, take one example. Right. And, um, and part of the reason for that is we feel more in control in a car um, and don't feel in control in a plane. And that's even true if our friend's driving the car who we think is an incompetent driver, we still feel safer than if we're in an airplane. So we were trying to use that philosophy approach to experience to say to people in a community if you think this if you take this disposal facility in your town you're going to get significant financial benefits it could be used in your town to depending on the size of the town to buy build a new library or lower property taxes significantly or for a long time for like 50 years guaranteed and so it would be a good deal for a town if they believed it was safe. If they didn't believe it was safe, there's no amount of money that would make that a good deal. Right. So to try to come up with a process by which we would go into towns and say, let's talk about this and you reach your own decision um, was a constant challenge to figure out how to do that. And we never did. I mean, we, we, we got, further than anyone I think thought we would. And we got a dozen towns where local officials would publicly say, let's think about this. Um, we had another 30 or 40 towns where people would come talk to us informally. But as soon as it became public, um, there'd be a huge momentum to stop it and a smaller momentum of people saying, well, let's think about it. And, uh, and in the end, we always, uh, lost were unsuccessful but what was enjoyable again was was that that nobody thought we could succeed and i did um and uh so um and i was sure in a way that i was right on the policy issues even though i have no training as i keep saying um but when i the job became a possibility to me i approached environmental scientists I knew and trusted and said, what do you think? Is this a safe thing? Would you accept it in your town? And they all said, this is a problem of education, not of engineering. Hmm. And yes, this would be safe. And uh, so with, I, you know, I, I accepted that as a, as a challenge. And, uh, and we had, as a small group working together, we had extremely interesting public meetings. Some of them were very stormy. Um, there were amusing events that 
at least I thought were amusing enough to keep writing down on pads of paper. So that <laughs> when it was over, I did write a book about it. Did you, uh, I, I'm curious, did you seek out these roles, uh, these appointments, uh, and, and pretty much all of them seemed focused on the environment, or did these just did these just sort of start to just come to you based on your prior service? Um, I went, I came to New Jersey to go to graduate school and get a master's in public affairs at what used to be called the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. And um, when I was coming to the end of that, it was two year program. I decided I wanted to work in state government and I could get to why state government as opposed to other levels. but. And I was looking in New York and Albany, I mean, New Jersey and Albany. Um, and I got to think healthcare might be an interesting field to be in. Um, believe it or not, there was 1975 and there was effort to have a national healthcare plan passed by Congress. And, um, and uh, uh, so I thought the environment was interesting to me, partly because it was the big thing at that moment. The first Earth Day had been only five years earlier in 1970. And uh, I, a person who had been a professor at the Woodrow Wilson School when I was there had gotten a job in the DEP, New Jersey DEP. And uh, he hired me. Um, I mean, he had a process and hired me. And uh, so it was sort of accidental. I mean, the next day after I got offered that job, I got a call back from an energy, the State Department Office of Energy that I had also applied to. And they weren't offering me a job, but if that had come first, I might well have done that instead. Um, and I always sort of thought I'd be more comfortable in human services or places dealing with people than with science. Mm -hmm. um, but the guy who hired me, my friend, got promoted several times. And every time he got promoted, I got promoted into the job he had vacated in the DEP. And uh, when I was there, when I got hired there, Brendan Byrne was the governor, a Democratic governor. And uh, after six years, there was an election and Tom Kane, a Republican, got elected governor. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. They'll throw out all the Democrats. And they didn't. And uh, uh, Tom Kane, to his credit, kept the people he thought were okay. And, uh, and I ended up so sort of surviving that transition and then a subsequent transition from Governor Kane to Governor Florio, I got to have longevity in that place. And uh, I think I lost track of your question, but that was, that was how I got. And then so the environment, so I always thought I would, could go to some other topic um, but I got to know more about this. So that was where I tended to gravitate. Yeah. Especially, I mean, it sounds like you really functioned as uh, you met, you mentioned, you use your term, a clearinghouse. Um, it, it seems to me from an interpersonal perspective, you really were a facilitator of kind of these, the, the exchange between experts to, uh, to the public, um, in terms of, of information and education. Um, you served as chair of the New Jersey Highlands Water Protection and Planning Council. Can you share a little bit about what the focus of that council's work was? 
Sure. Um, so that was after, so I was in state government for 19 years at the Department of Environmental Protection, four years um, trying to peddle radioactive waste. And then um, I worked, then I worked for Rush Holt, where we met, and uh, a newly elected congressman who's five days older than me, so I thought I could look up to him. And then, um, uh, and then I uh, ended up through a wonderfully odd story I could tell you if you wanted to hear it at the at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers, and uh, and it was while I was there that I got hired, got hired, got offered offered the opportunity to volunteer to be the chair of the Highlands Council, and. Uh, um, New Jersey, I think, is somewhat unique in having something like 600 boards and commissions in and around, in state government. Some of them are moribund, some of them are very active. Almost all of them are commissions formed of volunteers with a staff that's paid professionals. So I had been the head of the staff with the Radioactive Waste Signing Board. The opportunity I got here was to be the chair of the council the commission itself which is a different role but the, the staff is a part as a full-time paid thing being chair of the council was an unpaid um, time-consuming but volunteer thing um, so i got offered it because several people i know recommended me to then governor mcgreevy um, to do that and i think part of what made me both interested in it and potentially interesting to them to hire was my focus, and this gets back to your earlier question, I guess, my focus had gotten to be trying to help government succeed. And I felt, I came to feel that was more my mission than to make sure the last acre of wetlands was protected or the last, permit was issued to a developer in a timely way, that it was um, process more than substance that uh, interested me. And so with the Highlands, uh, the opportunity to chair the council was scary, um, but it was a really interesting process to have 15 people appointed by the governor, a number of them were mayors in their local community, the Highlands, as it's defined by the law, includes parts of 88 municipalities. Wow. Um, council had 15 people. We had staff, and and we met um, in the four years I was chairing it. We met something like 115 times. I started each meeting. I started the first meeting saying, "Welcome to the first meeting of Highlands Council," and then I I ended up doing that every meeting. So I got to <laughs> keep track. Um, and it was, you know, real and real, it, it remains dealing with important, interesting issues from having a huge part of the state's water supply resting underneath the land in that area, and that being important to uh, people, farmers, others who own property there, who saw their neighbors sell off 10 acres so they could send their son to college, and they were hoping to do the same thing. and. Overnight, this law, seemingly overnight, this law came along, even though it had been being debated for, depending on how you count, three years or 30 years or 80 years, um, it still 
seemed to come out of nowhere where suddenly someone said to them, you can't do what you were planning to do. And I could feel for them while recognizing the importance of, uh, of what the law was intended to do. Sure. You had, um, you had folks on the council with pretty strong feelings and you've had, you had to uh, manage all of that. And yet the plans for the Highlands region, at least the plans that, that you were working on at the time passed with a vote of nine to five. Uh, do you find in your, in your favor, uh, do you find uh, these types of commissions and councils to be, I don't know if, if partisan is the word, less partisan, more cooperative, more moderate uh, than what we tend to see in legislatures or Congress, or was it your style of leadership uh, that helped uh, to gain at least a fairly significant consensus, or is it just a mixture of both? I think to, to, in, to some extent, I think boards and commissions are the uh, secret reasonably unknown uh, treasure, a, a secret reasonably unknown treasure in state government or in government in general, that you have lots of programs either are required to have public participation or want to, but it's very hard to design those programs in ways that are meaningful where you, you know, there's often an agency says, here's a 600 page document, we're gonna have a public hearing on it in three weeks. If you have any comments, let us know. This was, the boards and commissions are different where people are brought into a process and, and are there for a period of time. And in some cases they're advisory, in some cases they're decision-making. Um, so I think there are lots of ways they can go wrong too and, and, and be a negative force, but I think they can be a constructive force. They're a way they're usually formed because some combination of uh, a buffer so that a governor, for example, doesn't have to say, it's my department of energy or right. community affairs that made this plan, but it's those people on the commission who've come up with it. Um, uh, so so that I think that that's part of it. I think to be the chair of it was, um, extremely attractive to me, and certainly in retrospect, as opposed to being a member. But one thing, the chair, and there are all sorts of different ways councils can be. So on some of them, the Radioactive Waste Siting Board, for example, the members of the council who are appointed by the governor choose the one of them to be the chair. Um, with the siting board by the Highlands, the governor chooses the chair from among the appointed people. So it was very different and ultimately very helpful to come in as the chair, not owing that to the other members of the council, not having had to be lobbying for that. Um, it was, the, the council was set up by statute to be bipartisan. Um, um, there were, there was a moment toward the end of my time on the council, um, just before we were, we, our job was to adopt a regional master plan and then to implement it. And it was the adoption of that master plan that consumed four years and what led to the nine to five vote you referenced. Um, just, be, just before that vote, uh, 
the Sierra Club, among other environmental groups, lobbied the governor to to the count. The Highlands Council was scheduled to have a meeting to adopt a, a, a regional master plan. Governor was lobbied by environmental groups to stop that from happening because there were things in the plan they objected to and they wanted the plan changed. Members of the council, particularly Democratic members of the council, because it was a Democratic governor, were called by the governor's office, in some cases the governor personally, in some cases not, and told that the governor wants this plan to not be approved as is in the vote that's coming up next Tuesday. Um, so I had a choice, um, which was easy for me of saying, well, I'm not gonna do that. You know, we've had a public process here for four years. We've made compromises in all directions. We've done a lot of work. We've got a majority who's gonna support this and that's our job and that's our role. And it's not you know, to, to, to accept a runaround, a, a change like that would be to invalidate the whole process of what we've gone through. And that process was important to me. So I said, I'm not gonna do that. And the person on the other end of the phone said, well, the governor really wants you to, and it's gonna remember. So <laughs> that's what happened. Um, and uh, I like to think I would have done the same thing if it was a paid job, I don't know, but it was. and. Uh, that was not quite public, what I just said to you. Um, um, but nine of the members voted voted for it. I was sort of proud that the ones who voted against it were the <clears throat> the people with views at the extremes of the spectrum of opinion on this. So there were two uh, environmental activists by profession who were extremely knowledgeable and thought it didn't go far enough in terms of regulating development or stopping development. There was a farmer and a, another local official who, on the other side, who thought we were going to diminish the value of people's property without sufficiently compensating them for it, and they couldn't support it. So that was four of the five votes against, and one, I never quite understood why, but um, so, you know, and there's a similar saga with the siting board too that I won't go into, but but so there certainly is politics. Um, if they work right, these things, boards and commissions, there gets to be, people get to know each other, respect each other. Uh, I always think it's important for government to have food, you know, to be able to take, have people go out to coffee or have a donut or have a sandwich together. Um, every so often that tends to be considered a mini scandal that government's spending money on food and somebody decrees that they should stop doing that. But I think, you know, those human interactions are important. They are. Um, and congratulations, by the way, because uh, I think you, uh, without even knowing you did it, came up with the title of this episode, quote, trying to make government succeed. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, that says a lot about you and your, your service. Um, and for those of you who are listening, who think that we are recording this in some fancy studio somewhere, I'm sure you just heard my dog barking at the mailman. 
So know that we are in the comfort of our individual homes uh, through the magic of the internet coming together. <laughs> so one, one of the one of the positive things of the last year. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, so John, even uh, I mean, you know, really, I think it's commendable that you are not the only person who is volunteering to do this type of work. Uh, but I think it is it is just um, it's important for people to know that there are people who are dedicating a significant amount of their own personal time. Uh, without really much personal benefit other than just the um, the feeling of fulfillment that comes with uh, good works being done and positive outcomes um, uh, from their their efforts so these are even though volunteer in some cases complex issues that you have uh, you have dealt with you add that with the work that you have been doing with the Eagleton Institute, how do you keep yourself fresh and just not burned out? Um, that's a good question to ask in the current era too, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, when I was in government, I frequently was thinking I'm gonna leave within a year. Um, I often was thinking this position I'm in is untenable because I report to somebody who I don't get along with, or I report to people who leave me out of the process, or, or whatever. And um, and to some extent, I never figured out where to go. I mean, people will, would say to me then, "Oh, it's such a sacrifice you make, you people make, because you could go out on the private market and get hired at three times the salary." Well, nobody ever offered me that. I don't know what I would have said, but. Um, um, I think interacting with people is part of it. Um, and it goes back to, I'll get, go back to what I said about why state government was appealing. Um, when, when I was working in the Department of Environmental Protection, we were getting federal funds that were administered by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And every year, a team from that office would come to this to New Jersey for two or three days and we would take them around the state and they would do an evaluation of our work. And so they would meet with different interest groups and, and see different areas. And I was impressed that when they, when we would go out to a, a marina, for instance, because we regulated marinas, um, the people from Washington were just really impressed to see a marina. And, and I, you know, so well, we do that sort of all the time. Yeah. And that being close to the the turf you're dealing with is appealing to I think to lots of people. Being in Washington, you in lots of respects can have more power. Um, being as a local government, you can have more of a local connection but less power often. And state government seemed like a nice place in the middle for that for me of having some regional perspective, having some amount of power, um, but still being able to um, you know, drive home after a late night meeting. And I'm sure the family and uh, the wonderful soothing power of folk music also, also helped a little. Yeah, I think, you know, I've done a folk music radio show since I was in college, then when I was in graduate school. 
and now I, I mean, that's since 1974 or six. Um, so it's so much a part of me, it's hard to pull it, pull it out, pull out pieces, but I think that's helped me a lot in two ways. One is it's something I have complete control over. I do it at a college radio station that's very nice and lets me be there. You know, again, don't get paid anything. And I design the program I want to have. And I am each week hoping I'm going to get it right, but never quite getting it right. But, but that, um, you don't have that kind of freedom. You shouldn't have that kind of freedom in a bureaucracy, in a, in a larger organization, in an academic institute. Um, and having it there um, was uh, important to me in, in some sense, I realized that compared to, I think it made me more patient with the ways I didn't have it in at work, the ways most people don't have it at work. Um, um, and I think, you know, to deal with issues that you think are challenging this, um, is, you know, I, when people run for office and talk about solving some problem, I'm always suspicious because I think you don't solve problems, you address them, you maybe make them less harmful or more beneficial. But it's rare that, you know, you say, well, we've solved the problem of making abortions legal in this country. Well, you may think you did, but here we are. Exactly. Exactly. You mentioned the the Institute. So you serve as associate director of the Eagleton Institute of Politics, where you direct the Institute's center on the American governor. I would imagine that this probably exposes you to some of the intricacies of state governments. Uh, New Jersey has some structural components that are fairly unique compared to the other 49 states. I would imagine a lot of our listeners are fairly new to following New Jersey politics and government. Can you provide some examples of some of the, the quirkier aspects of New Jersey government? Um, well, I mean, there are a lot of political stories and jokes. The line between them is a little blurry of what's a good, a good joke that became a story or a real incident. Um, I, I suspect most states have those. Of, Brendan Byrne, when he was the former governor, said he always wanted to be buried in Jersey City so he could stay active in politics, those kind of things. Um, um, I think the, the, the one, one I've been thinking about lately, particularly, is, is a, a minor quirk, if you will, but I imagine unique to New Jersey is there two unwritten traditions and one I think is admirable and one is harmful. Um, the admirable one is New Jersey Supreme Court has seven members. They serve until they're 70 years old and then they retire. So there aren't some of the issues of lifelong appointments that there are with other justice, other courts. Um, I've talked to people who were on the court who felt um, and I sympathize with this now that I'm at that age too, that 70 is much too young you know, to, to be forced to retire, that having a, a top age is appropriate, maybe 75, maybe 80. But um, members of the Supreme, New Jersey has a very powerful governor compared to other states. And one of the reasons is the governor has huge, significant appointment powers, whereas in 
most states, the attorney general, for example, is elected or the treasurer is elected. In New Jersey, the governor is elected and a lieutenant governor. Everybody else is appointed by the governor to a large extent. Um, so when, the, when a Supreme Court justice reaches the mandatory retirement age of 70, the governor who's then in the state house gets to replace, nominate someone to replace that justice. The person nominated has to be confirmed by the state Senate. Um, has to serve, can serve for seven years on an interim basis or seven years, and then comes back before the governor and the Senate to be confirmed for life, what says for life, but really until they're age 70. So there's a, a, a check on that, that you know, somebody has to serve for seven years first and a, and a governor could say, well, we, that's the end of your service, thank you very much. What happens when there's a vacancy in New Jersey is that of the seven members on the court, there is this unwritten tradition that no more than half, no more than four of the seven can be of the same political party. So if there are four Democrats and a Republican retires and New Jersey's current governor is Phil Murphy is a Democrat, he would not appoint a Democrat to fill that vacant seat because of this unwritten tradition. He might appoint an independent, he'd more likely appoint a Republican because there is this tradition. And it's so civil compared to what goes on with the US Supreme Court. Um, and it's hard, sort of hard to believe that it's you know, there's no nothing mandatory about it. But Chris Christie, when he was the governor, actually he sort of tried to get around it, and the state senate made his life miserable, and so he stayed. <laughs> he stayed with that. So that's the good side of an unwritten tradition that makes for better government, I think, and better society. The another unwritten tradition that's less so is um, so the governor has this huge appointment power I mentioned. For most of those positions, the governor nominates people and they're confirmed by the state Senate. So even for when I was chair of the Highlands Council, I was nominated by the governor, confirmed by the state Senate. Um, um, there's this process in the middle called senatorial courtesy, where the governor nominates someone and a state senator from that person's district or the county that person lives in can block the nomination or has to sign off on nomination. They don't have to give their reasons, but they can just say no. And they can say no because they think the person nominated is unqualified or because they think something completely unrelated, but they want the governor's attention. So they can say, no, I won't let this person be on the whatever, noise control council because I want you to appoint this person to be a district judge in Essex County. And it, it's a way of controlling the amount of power New Jersey's governor has, but it's also um, makes it, means that these boards and commissions have a large number of vacancies at any given time because a state senator has blocked the nomination from going forward and the governor, it's not worth it for the governor to expend whatever political capital they'd have to expend to get that blockade lifted. So. That I think, for one thing, calling it courtesy is very much a misnomer. <laughs> Another thing, I think it stops um, 
some good progress in, in, in government activity. So one quirky example that leads to civility and another not so much. Right. <laughs> so there are those listening uh, who wish to get involved but might not know how to do so. Given your experience, what is it that you would recommend? And this could be for, you know, these could be paid positions, but uh, also volunteer uh, opportunities. Well, I'll start with paid positions. I, I tell students, I, I think a lot of older people tell younger people to do whatever they did, you know, and sort of say, you know, here's a, you know, it's a, I'm a good model, go follow the career I follow. And I think I do that too. Um, to, so take that with a grain of salt. But um, I tell students that to look at the executive branch of government for employment, that the legislature, Congress, state legislatures gets more attention usually. The votes are, have more drama to them if a bill is being up for a hearing or for, for adoption. Um, but the executive branch, the governor's office, the departments of transportation, community affairs, and so forth, um, for one thing, have significant power to implement those laws. And as we've seen, actually, with um, the current president, the executive branch can take can radically shift the the effect of a given piece of legislation without going back to Congress, just through exercising their legitimate powers to to uh, implement a law. Um, so that's one reason that, that the executive branch is interesting. But another is there may be 500 people who work for the state legislature in New Jersey who have jobs in the state legislature. There are probably 60,000 who work in the executive branch of government. So just in terms of a place to work, there are more jobs. I mean, more, so sure. that may sound crass, but there's more, more opportunities to find something that might be a good fit for you. Um, and the way, and, and the way to do that, or I think to be, if you want to be on a board or commission or be considered for that, is to ask and to either go to your local assembly person or state senator and say, I'm interested in doing this. This is why I'd be a good person to do it. And I'd like to be considered. And you know, maybe like lots of letters, maybe nothing will come of that. Maybe you find a way to talk to your legislator because legislators, state legislators are not all that intimidating. Even members of Congress are not all that intimidating and they like to talk to constituents and they like to be helpful to people. And that's why most people get into politics is to be helpful to people. So, there's that. And to look around when a governor's term is coming to an end and there are going to be lots of personnel changes or when you notice that a new director of some office has been appointed and that's the area you're interested in. Um, volunteering um, at the local level, I don't know too much about. I mean, as you mentioned, I was on my town school board for three years, but, but in general, People need volunteers, you know, local governments need volunteers. There are all sorts of activities of government that are not controversial, that are not really policy driven, but are, you know, sort of colloquially referred to as picking up the trash, that there's no Republican or Democratic way to pick up the trash. Um, and so there are lots of positions for people who want to be involved, want to be helpful, but don't necessarily want to 
be associated with a particular position or may not have an opinion or want to be involved in the controversy. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's some of what comes to mind. Well, I think it's spot on. And I think that a lot of folks who are looking to volunteer, uh, really, you don't even really have to go much further than your block. <laughs> so right. uh, there are plenty of opportunities. And now with, with so many communities have uh, community uh, social media pages on, on, on Facebook and, and Instagram, and usually you can just go right there and find all kinds of wonderful opportunities and, uh, and, and folks looking for, for volunteers to help make your immediate community better. Uh, let alone the, the, the county and, and state opportunities that are available. So, And it gives you a connection with your community that you wouldn't have otherwise, um, and, and which ultimately can be a, a rich experience years after you've done whatever service you were doing, that you know a person you served with or someone who was an administrator in the local government or whatever. Exactly. And if you still are looking for something to do, then join the never-ending uh, infinite chorus of podcasts. <laughs> John, thank you so much for, for reconnecting with me after all these years. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Well, it's been a pleasure being here. Thank you for asking. This podcast focuses on the good of government. So each episode we will take a look at good government in action. For our inaugural good government segment, we turn to an unlikely place to focus on farming, the city of Camden. Urban farming has generated a good deal of interest, enough to allow the United States Department of Agriculture to provide a grant of nearly $300,000 to support the agricultural work of the Camden Urban Agricultural Collaborative. The funds will help Camden citizens to grow fresh organic produce, the harvest is then sold to local buyers, including health systems such as Virtua. In addition, the collaborative teaches young people the business of agriculture, a field with little to no exposure in an urban environment like Camden. Whether used in agriculture or another industry, these skills, such as operations, order processing, purchasing, customer service, they're all transferable to a host of fields and industries. Other benefits? Well, if you're growing fruits and vegetables, you will likely eat fruits and vegetables and therefore improve your overall health. And as with most every personal investment in your community, whether through farming or some other community-based effort, the more one invests locally, the more likely to care for, protect, and take pride in one's neighborhood and the people who live in it. Learn more about this story from the Courier Post by visiting forthepublicpod.com. You did it. You reached the end of our first episode. I'll leave you with this. Government is only as good as the people we elect to serve. This episode published the week prior to Election Day 2020. If you have voted, sweet! If you have yet to vote, research the candidates. You may not need to for positions like president, senator, U.S. representative, but for some of your state and local offices, especially those local offices, Think things like school board. Research the candidates and vote. If we elect good servants, we advance good government. I'm Jack Clett, and this has been For the Public.